If you have your Bible, I'd like for you to turn to Luke chapter 18. We're going to finish our summer series next Sunday, talking about the parables. Last week we talked about the persistent widow, the early part of Luke chapter 8, where Jesus gave the parable to encourage us to always pray and not lose heart. Because he knows that we have a tendency of not always praying. We have a tendency of losing heart. And so I love the story of the persistent widow who just would not give up and would not give up and would not give up. And because of her persistence, she got what she wanted. And so God is teaching us to be a pest in prayer, to really never give up. Because again, how much we pray can really determine our faith. If we really believe that God and God alone is the answer we got to keep praying. There is no plan B. And so today we want to go to the very next parable that's mentioned in Luke chapter 18. And that's the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, or the Pharisee and the tax collector. And so we're going to read it and just make some comments. There could not be two more opposite people in Jewish eyes. Because the Pharisee was the ultimate performer. They were all about looking good to other people. They went above and beyond what the law required to try to show off their performance. The Pharisee or the publican or the tax collector, another name is a publican, they, are, they were really considered the scum of the earth because they were Jewish people who collected taxes for the Roman government and they not only collected taxes but they would almost always overtax and gouge people, and they would get to benefit from it. And so they were really despised. They were the IRS off the map back in that day, all right? And so there couldn't have been more opposite people, as the story gives two characters. Now, most of the parables, to me, are really simple stories that, again, a, a grade school child could understand— but we're going to focus mostly on the Pharisee and his pride today. But let's read the story together and just make some comments as this follows up the story of the persistent widow. So in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, it says, He also spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Now, it's interesting, most of the parables are given to the disciples. Most are given to his followers. But this particular parable is actually given to the Pharisees, those who are trusting in themselves. How many of you know he probably wasn't going to get an amen on this sermon? He wasn't probably going to get a decision on this sermon. I mean, it's hard sometimes when you know God is talking to you. And so he is specifically talking to those who are filled with pride. That word despise, by the way, literally means to regard as nothing. And so Pharisees literally looked down their nose and saw everyone else who wasn't like them literally as a zero, as a nothing, as a goose egg. I mean, they had no respect whatsoever for anyone who was not a performer like they were. And by the way, just to remind you, when Jesus walked this earth, his all-out warfare came not from the world, not from the drunkards or the prostitutes, but all-out war came from the Pharisees and these religious leaders who were so into performance that they no longer had a relationship 
with God. And that's very, very sad indeed. And so he goes on to say, two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And again, couldn't be two more opposite people. The Pharisee, if they were to walk into the average church today, I believe they could be the chairman of any committee. They could probably be on staff. I mean, they were the ultimate performers. And so they both came to the temple to pray. And by the way, Jesus said back in the book of Matthew, as he was cleaning out the temple, he said, my, my house shall be called a house of prayer. More than anything else, God wanted his house to be called a house of prayer. And so they were both going to the temple, and they were both going for the right reason. They were both going to pray, all right? So kind of keep that in mind. I think the reason they were going was a very noble reason, all right? So let's first of all look at the Pharisee. Now the Pharisee, he could just flat impress you with his prayer how many of you i just want to ask you and you don't need to respond but how many of you can think of somebody in your life or somebody from your past who could really really pray i mean they just really impressed you with their ability to pray i mean some people are just gifted at being able to pray one of the first people i can remember growing up in a sunday school class there was a gal in there and man when they called on her to pray i mean she could pray the wallpaper off a wall i mean she even prayed in king james the these and the thous and the tithers and the withers and and i'm sitting there and i was just so intimidated by the way that she could pray she seemed to be able to cover everything threw in some scripture i mean she was amazing and so the pharisees were definitely impressive in how they could pray and by the way they loved to stand and be seen of men and even today if you go to israel and there's uh, jews orthodox jews on the plane on the way over there whenever it comes time for the hour of prayer regardless of where they are they will get up and they will pray and they have the, the prayer shawl, which they kind of put over their face, and that is kind of their secret place, how they can get alone with God, even if they're in a crowd. And regardless of where they are at the hour of prayer, they will stand up and pray. And so again, me, on the way over there, I was very curious, and so I, even though they were praying, I was doing this. You know, I was just watching. I was just taking notes. And so it is amazing, their dedication. And so the Pharisee gets up, and again, he loved to be seen by men. He loved to impress people with his ability to pray. He prays 33 words, and they're in yellow here. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. You know, this Pharisee gave a 33-word prayer that seemed pretty impressive, and it was all about him and all about his performance, and he was kind of looking down his nose at everybody else. You know, pride has a way of just kind of looking down our nose at everyone else that is not like us. Now, there's something about human nature that, that, that wants to exalt self and diminish other people. There's just something about human nature. Now, Obviously, we look on the outside, but I want to remind you, and I'm glad that you guys spent some mirror time today. I really am, all right? They say there's no such thing as love at first sight before breakfast, all right? You got to get in front of that mirror first. And so mirror time is good, but how many of you know that in honesty, God doesn't really care about how we look on the outside? 
What God really cares about is what's on the inside. And so even though this Pharisee undoubtedly looked very impressive to everybody who was in the temple that day, if we could kind of x-ray his heart, we would see this. We would find out that he had pride in his life. And that really is the problem. By the way, if you want a simple definition of pride, it's the middle letter of pride, I. By the way, that's the middle letter of sin. And that really is the problem with pride. It's the big I. And so here the Pharisee, again, who seemed to be impressive, on the outside he had to look, you know, he had to make quite an impression, but God was looking at the heart. And then there's the other, there's the publican or the tax collector. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat on his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Could not have been two more opposite. One who was very impressive, standing up and just looking like they had it all together. The other guy standing afar off would not even raise his eyes and just began to beat on his chest. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And actually, if you study that text, it's not, he's not just saying a sinner, but he's saying the most wicked sinner. Matter of fact, the Amplified Bible gives you that. It's not just, I'm just a sinner. He saw himself as the most wicked of sinners. He's completely broken before God. Now, he would be the kind that many people would kind of move around and give all the room they need to in church. He would not be your typical person you would expect to be in church. But if we were to look at his heart, we would see some brokenness in there, a broken heart. And I love what David says in Psalms 51. This was after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. You know, as we gather here to worship, and I'm just telling you, human nature is we want to we wanna look good to other people. I mean, that's human nature. And, I, and sometimes I do a lot of different things. We've done a lot of crazy things. And I've had a lot of people say to me before, what do you think that visitor thought? What do you think the visitor thought about that John boat up on the stage? What do you think that visitor thought about everybody wearing their clothes backwards? And I do care what the visitors think. But can I tell you the only thing that really matters is what God thinks. And when we leave today... It really doesn't matter what people think about us. What really matters is what God thinks about us as he looks at the heart. And so he only prays seven words. And again, very unorthodox. He's just praying from his heart. That's why I love to, see, I love to hear children pray, don't you? I mean, children just, they don't know. I mean, they just say what's on their mind. I think I've shared before about Oscar, a fellow out when I was pastoring Gerald. He was a truck driver that got saved. Oscar, when he got saved, I mean, he was one of the toughest birds ever. I mean, that guy was, had a, a calloused heart. He was one of those guys you never thought in a million years would ever get saved, but he got saved. And I remember when he, when he walked down the aisle, there was just a gasp in the room. And when Oscar got saved, he really got saved, and he started getting on the, the CB. Now, I, I'm not a truck driver. I don't hear what goes on on the CB, but I hear sometimes it's not always uplifting to God. But anyway, he would get on there, and he said if he heard people getting kind of foul mouth, he'd just pick it up and start singing, How Great Thou Art. And he said there was just dead silence on the CB. 
But we're in a meeting one time, and, and, and this was Jim Muir was pastoring up in Owensville, and Jim called on Oscar to pray. And he had just been saved. He hadn't been saved that long. I couldn't believe Jim called on him to pray. And I just thought to myself, man, because prayer can be very intimidating, but old Oscar stood up. And I mean, Oscar didn't know how to use King James words. He just stood up and began to talk to God like his buddy. God, this is old Oscar. And he just started just talking with God. He started crying. And you could just feel God come down. I said way back then, man, I want to learn to pray like Oscar. Just from a broken heart, just crying out to God. Jesus goes on to say here, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's kind of a universal law there that if we choose to humble ourselves, God promises to exalt us. But if we choose to be filled with pride, God will humble us. I want to real quickly give you five lessons from the Pharisee. I want to focus on the Pharisee because he's the one we want to avoid, all right? So number one, pride refuses to admit that it has a need. Never once in the Pharisee's prayer did he ever admit that he had a need for God. Never once. Pride always sees in others, again, what it cannot see in itself. I think about the church at Laodicea. You remember they said Jesus was writing to the church, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Isn't it amazing? Here the church at Laodicea did not see any need whatsoever, and yet God looked at them and saw them completely the opposite. I want to ask you guys today when you came in, and I don't want you to respond or while you're watching from home, I wonder how many of you today really felt like that, that you needed a fresh touch from God. I wonder how many of us came saying, God, I, I just desperately need a fresh touch. You know, here's one of the things I find in the Bible. Whenever people really get in the presence of God, and they, they experience the holiness of God, they automatically just fall down before God. They automatically are broken before God. I think about Isaiah. You remember in the book of Isaiah, the people were very wicked. He says in the first chapter, the ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know me. And even though they were going through the motions of religion, they did not know God. In chapter 5, he gives a series of woes to the nation of Israel because of their corruption. But then in chapter 6, Isaiah looks up and he sees the Lord personally. And if you remember, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the Lord. I know people say we need more excitement in the church, and maybe that's true. But I think the thing we need more than anything else is just to be so caught up in the presence of God that we're just broken before God when we realize how holy He is and how unholy we are and how unworthy we are. I mean, from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, when people get in the presence of God, they automatically just fall down. I think about Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel has a vision of the Lord. The last verse of Ezekiel 1 says, Ezekiel says, I fell on my face. Chapter 2, verse 1, God says, stand up. I have something to say to you. 
Let me say this, my problem has never been staying on the mountaintop. I used to think as a young pastor, I wanted to live on the mountaintop. I wanted to live up there where I had goosebumps on top of goosebumps and just go from mountaintop to mountaintop. I thought I had to grin all the time in the Christian life. My problem has never been to stay up on the mountaintop. My struggle has been to stay broken before God. I believe that if we'll learn to be broken before God, that he will exalt us and he will lift us up so first of all pride refuses to admit it has a need number two pride always sees the faults in others it's amazing how the pharisee said i thank you that i'm not like other men are and there is something in human nature if we're being honest there's something that's so easy to see in others what you cannot see in yourself that's that's just human nature and and again he says i thank you that i'm not like other men But I think when we're in the presence of God, we realize that we need that fresh touch from God. I think about uh, the the story I give every once in a while, the two women in the kitchen. There's a lady who invited a friend over, and they're sitting in her kitchen, and they're looking out the kitchen window. And the lady who owned the house said to her friend, I can't believe my neighbor back there is hanging out her dirty laundry. She said, that's embarrassing to the whole neighborhood. Her, her, Her sheets are filthy. And she kept going on and on about how dirty her neighbor's sheets were. And in a minute, her friend said to her, you know, I think if you look closely, the dirt is not on your neighbor's sheets, it's on your window. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. People who are often critical of other people typically have a bigger problem in their own life. But pride always sees in others what it cannot see in itself. I love the story of David and Nathan. Remember when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, had her husband murdered, and God sent Nathan the prophet to David. Now, if if most modern pastors were to go to David, they might first of all say, you sinner, you really blew it. Or maybe they do a, a Hebrew word study on adultery and murder. But when Nathan came to David, if you remember, he didn't do any of that. He just just told David a simple story because God knows in human nature we can see in others what we cannot see in ourselves. If you remember, Nathan came to David and said, David, there's two men in your kingdom. One is extremely wealthy, has all kinds of herds and flocks. The other is extremely poor and has one little lamb that's grown up with him, eats with him, sleeps with him, and just part of his family. And the rich man had a traveler coming by, and instead of taking one of his many flocks, he came over to the poor man who had one little lamb, killed the lamb, and fed it to the traveler. And if you remember there from 2 Samuel chapter 12, David was mad. And the Bible says his anger was greatly aroused, and David said to Nathan, Surely the man that has done this will die. Ooh, he was mad. I don't know this, but my opinion is Nathan stuck his finger in David's nose because Nathan did say to David, you are the man. I want to tell you, when God puts his finger in your nose and says you're the one that needs a revival. I remember several years ago, I was at a pastor's we were sitting around with some pastors, and they were, they were kind of talking about the church not really being in revival. And they were talking about, why doesn't the church folks get it? Why, why is our church people not having revival? And they were kind of going off on the church people. And I honestly, I felt like God said to me, your problem is not 
the ridge, your problem is you. And I had to say to those other pastors, I said, I, I just got to be really honest. My problem is not the people not getting it. My problem is I don't get it. I want to tell you, pride is one of the most destructive things on the planet. Pride, again, refuses to admit it has a need. Pride sees in others what it cannot see in itself. I think I shared at one point growing up, one of my best friends went right down the street. And uh, we were just good friends. We got into a lot of trouble together. He was one of the most popular guys in school. He was a diver. I mean, he was in great shape. Uh, back when the, at Six Flags, when they had those divers, he'd go way up there and dive into the little pool. And, I mean, he was just super popular. All the girls loved him. And, and so we were best friends. I got to hang out with him. And uh, our life both got involved with drugs and alcohol. And then my life turned around. And his life kind of continued down a similar path, the same path that he was on. And his dad came to me. Now, his dad was a deacon in our church. His dad came to visitation every single week. His dad was there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. He was there every night for visitation. One of the most faithful guys you would ever know. And so his dad came to me and said, would you go and talk to him? He said, I'm concerned about my son because he's, he seems to be going down a bad path. And so I went and talked to him, and we had been to camp together. We had had all kinds of experiences, and so we were good friends. I sat down, and I said, hey, I just, I mean, I'm, just, I'm concerned about you, but I also want you to know your dad is concerned about you, and your dad has a heart to see you really just sell out to God. And here's what my friend told me. He said, you know, in all the years growing up in church, one of our family traditions was after Sunday church, we'd all come home and we'd have Sunday dinner. All my, my sisters, we'd all come together and we'd have a Sunday meal. And he said, Roger, almost every single Sunday when we sat down for the meal, all my parents did was talk about other people in the church. And he said, if that's what church is, I don't want to have any part of it. Isn't it sad to hear this father, who was a really a great guy, he had a concern for his son, but he could not see the need in his own life. And that's pride. Pride sees in others what it cannot see in itself. And it also, it really is true that we not only see in others what we cannot see in ourselves, but other people's sins always seem bigger. Isn't that true? Now, I know in the Bible there is no big and little sins, but in our, if we're to be really transparent, in our theology, there are big sins and little sins. There really are. And the big sins are always the ones they're doing. Have you ever noticed that? The little sins, the insignificant sins, are the ones I'm doing. Very seldom will people break down about themselves. I had a guy come to me many years ago and said, Pastor, you need to preach more against drunkenness. We need to hear some message on drunkenness. I said, are you struggling with drunkenness? He said, well, I'm not, but we need to hear more about it. Very seldom will somebody come to me and say, you know what? I'm guilty of pride. Pride is one of those things we can see in someone else, but we can seldom see in our own life. Number three, pride is more concerned with what man thinks than with what God thinks. And again, it's, there's something about human nature. We care about what people think. But pride can so focus on what people think that sometimes we fail to think what God thinks. One of my favorite all-time Jim Muir stories, Jim and I went to a conference. This was back when I was pastoring at the Gerald campus. 
and I don't even remember where it was, somewhere down in Texas, we came back, and, and we were both going to charge hell with a water pistol, man. We were just sold out to God. We were going to just really just kind of be on fire. And so as we came back, I remember we ate, might have been in uh, Rolla, but we stopped at noon, and we ate at Pizza Hut. It was right at high noon. And so Pizza Hut was packed out. There was a table over in the corner, and that was our table. My back was to everyone else, and Jim was sitting in the corner facing everybody. And as we were talking and getting ready to eat, Jim said to me, he looked up at me, and he really had kind of a blank stare, as I remember, and he said, I believe God wants me to share the gospel. And I said, man, that's exciting, man. Yeah, we're going to go back and we're going to preach the gospel, man. We're, gonna, we're just going to you know, tear up Gerald Owensville, man, with the gospel. And then he looked up at me and said, no, I believe right now he wants me to share it. Now, it's high noon. Pizza Hut is packed out. I mean, it is packed out. And all of a sudden, I felt my nerves. Because I wasn't thinking about what God was thinking. I was thinking about what people were thinking. How many of you remember eating at Pizza Hut and having somebody get up and preach the gospel? It just doesn't happen every day. And so me, being the spiritual giant that I am, I said to Jim, I think we ought to pray about this. Yeah, it was that pathetic. And so I prayed, God, if this isn't you, please tell me, please. And so after we prayed, about just a couple minutes later, Jim looked up at me and said, I've got to do it. He said, there's one guy over here at a table, and for some reason, God has put that guy on my heart. And so he stood up in the corner of Pizza Hut. It is packed out. People are up at the, at the buffet bar. People, you hear forks going. He gets up and says, can I have everybody's attention? And you could hear forks drop. Everybody at the buffet line just stood there frozen. And Jim said, a very simple gospel. Jim just said, I just feel like God wants me to write, remind you that he loves you, that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, and that he wants to come into your life and be your Lord and Savior. I mean, it was about two minutes. And when he got done and sat down, the manager was right at our table. The manager came over, was sitting there, and I remember the manager saying to us, is your pizza okay? I don't know if he thought Jim was having a reaction to the pizza, having a, you know, I don't know what he thought, but, it, but we said, yeah, pizza's fine, and, and I, can, I can still remember people behind me, I could hear some of them mocking what Jim said. And then the guy that he, he kind of said, this is the guy God laid on my heart, that guy got up to get ready to pay his bill, but instead of going to pay his bill, that guy made a beeline straight to our table. And he looked down and he said, you know, I've been running from God for quite a while. And he said, you will never know what that meant to me. And when he walked out, man, I felt about that big because I was, so much I was too much concerned with what people were thinking than with what God's thinking. And that's pride. Pride is more concerned with what man thinks than with what God thinks. Uh, when I was at Fairview pastoring many years ago, we had a visitor that showed up, and, and the visitor never been to church, so he didn't know how church went. And so right in the middle, I was just kind of in the middle of my message, he raised his hand. That's unusual. And so I, I stopped, I, I called on him. I didn't know if he wanted to find out where the bathroom was or how long it was going to be or what. But I, I stopped, I said, do you have a question? And he said, I'd like to get saved. 
I said, it's not time right now. Okay. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. But I felt like God saying to me, you were done. A couple, you know, you've been done for a few minutes, all right? So this guy said, I'd like to get saved. And so, I, I mean, it was so amazing that this guy did he didn't know any better than just to be obedient to God. And so he raised his hand and said, I'd like to get saved. So we stopped the service. We had an invitation. He came forward, prayed to receive Christ. But, you know, I want to have that kind of tenderness that when God speaks, that I'm more concerned with what God thinks than with what people think. Let me go on. Pride always leads to destruction. He says there, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is a 100% guarantee that if you choose to hold on to pride, God will humble you. I think about Nebuchadnezzar. You remember that he was uh, really boastful. In, in uh, Daniel chapter 4, the Bible says he was saying as he looked out over his kingdom, This is great Babylon that I have built for my majesty. And as he was speaking the words, God's judgment fell, and God sent him out to eat grass like a wild oxen. And for seven years, he lived like an animal. And at the end of seven years, the very last verse of Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar said this, Now I know that those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. And I just want to say that God is able to bring us down. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Bible says in Proverbs 6, six things the Lord hates and seven are an abomination. And the very first one he mentions is a proud look. God hates pride because it's everything anti against God and who he wants us to be. In Proverbs 16, verse 8, it says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. So over and over, it tells us that if we choose to walk in pride, God will humble us. And the last thing, number five, each person has to make that choice. How many of you would like to humble somebody at some point in your life? How many of you have had somebody who's been very annoying and you would like to humble them? You guys are so Christian. You're just so godly. I'm kind of like James and John when the city of Samaria didn't receive them. Remember what they said to Jesus? Can we call fire down because they didn't receive us? Let's call fire down. How many of you are glad that God doesn't answer those prayers? We would all be zapped. We'd all be in heaven right now. But you know, the truth is, I cannot humble you. You can't humble me. But we have to make that choice. You know, when we walk out of here today, and again, it doesn't really matter that much what people think about us, but what really matters is what God thinks about us. And all the great worship and coming together, wouldn't it be great if all of us walked out of here today with just a broken heart, realizing how desperately we need God in our life every single day? I confess to you, and I've confessed this different times, but God brings it back to me. Over the years, I've had the privilege of pastoring some pretty tough characters. How many of you know Christians can be tough? Church folks can be mean. And I have people ask me periodically, can you think of the, the meanest person that you've ever pastored? Oh, yeah. Me. 
I want to tell you, man, my heart gets so hardened, and sometimes when I get away from God, I begin to be filled with pride. I want us to take a moment, and let's just go to the Lord. Those of you who are here, those who are watching by way of stream, I wonder what would happen today if all of us would just have a broken heart and just ask God to heal us, to fill us. I wonder today what would happen if all of us realize that we're the ones that desperately need a fresh touch from God. Let's stand together. Let's just have a moment of prayer. I can't think how exciting it would be that if all of us could walk out of here today in a way with a broken heart and yet being filled with God. As David said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. I just want you to realize how desperately we need God. I want you just to kind of reach up to God and just ask God to fill you with His Spirit. You know, going through this COVID-19 has been such a crazy, crazy journey. Yesterday, I got the opportunity to preach a graveside service for a 95-year-old World War II veteran. I can't tell you, I always, people say, why do you do the extra funerals? There's so much going on, why do you do the extra funerals? I always feel like when somebody didn't have a church home, they need somebody to love on them, somebody to encourage them, somebody to give them hope. And I can honestly say, before I walk out of the car yesterday and before I do any funeral, I say, God, I just want your love to flow through me. God, I just want them to experience your love. And man, I just try to love on them and encourage them with the love of God to really experience that love. So I just want you to kind of draw a circle around yourself. And today, I just want you just to ask God to fill you. It's no wonder that why in Revelation, when we get before the throne of God, the Bible says we cast our crowns before the throne and we fall on our face. I think we'll probably spend several hundred years on our face before the throne, just being blown away that God, His grace would be big enough to love us and to die on the cross for us. If there's anyone here today that just needs someone to talk to or pray with, please feel free to stick around. We'd love to take time to talk with you or pray with you. As we walk out today, I hope God is smiling at each of our lives because we've allowed God to fill us. Let me pray for you, and then Maggie will lead us in a closing song. Father, I thank you for those who are here today, those who are watching by way of stream. And God, more than anything else, we just need a revival within. And God, you know more than anyone here, the most hard-hearted person on the planet is often me. God, I pray that you would fill us, empower us, 
I pray that the change in our country would begin within us. As every day we get up, we're broken before you and we realize how desperately we need you every single day. Fill us, empower us, help us to make a difference everywhere we go this week. In Jesus' name, amen.